Welcome to How They Get Stuff Done, where we ask successful people about the productivity habits behind their success. Side effects of listening to this show may include elevated levels of motivation, acute feelings of inspiration, and lasting improvements to your productivity. Now, here's your host, Peter Akis. Hey, folks. Today, I'm speaking with Derek Reimer. Derek is the founder of SavvyCal, a tool for scheduling meetings that both you and the people you're scheduling with will love. He's also the co-founder of Drip, a marketing automation tool, and he is the host of the Art of Product podcast. I have long enjoyed using an app to schedule my meetings. For example, I schedule meetings with my coaching clients. Rather than going back and forth with endless emails trying to find a mutually convenient time, I just send people a link so they can book a slot on my calendar. I had been using a different tool, but recently I discovered SavvyCal, and it's so much more enjoyable to use. So I looked into who created it, and I ended up on Derek's Twitter account. I learned that Derek had co-founded Drip, which was one of the first apps I used years ago when I was first building my online business, and I have very fond memories of Drip, even though I no longer use it because Drip went into a different direction. But I was interested to hear Derek's story. It turns out there were quite a few ups and downs. Derek and I discuss regaining your confidence after launching a failed product, transitioning from wearing all the hats in a business to delegating certain tasks, saving your most productive time for your most valuable work, and much more. Enjoy the show. Hey, Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, Peter, thanks for having me. So let's start with a very deep question right away, Derek. You have founded a bunch of businesses at this point, some more successful than others. One of the companies you founded, or I guess co-founded, is that right? Co-founded was Drip. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. uh, so obviously it's gotten quite big now, but I was sort of doing some background research on you and I saw that you also launched a company that was kind of like a Slack competitor called Level mm-hmm. and it didn't mm-hmm. do so well. So I was kind of wanting to hear, how does it feel to launch something that doesn't work well? Not great. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, so a little bit of context there. Yeah, I, I co-founded Drip alongside my co-founder, Rob Walling, back in 2012. And then we sold to Lead Pages in mm. 2016. And I basically spent a little more time there to help transition and moved on about close to two years afterward. And coming out of coming out of that, you know, that felt like a kind of a successful journey. Yeah. Like it, it did... You know, we, we hit all the notes. We started really small. We grew a small team and then we were strategically acquired. Like, so sort of riding on a high off of that experience of like, okay, I feel like I'm catching, like learning how to do this whole SaaS thing well. And like, I can come out with some kind of ambitious idea for the next, for the next thing. And yeah, through that process, like learned just how troublesome, like Slack can be at scale in large organizations, especially where it's like super noisy and, and hard to keep 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 tabs on various threads and like it's just I, I as a maker as someone who is like writing a lot of code and doing kind of deep work stuff like I just became increasingly annoyed by slack and I couldn't couldn't ignore that that tug to like go and try to try to make progress on that front but you know I it was a very tough learning experience I probably over-engineered my first version so I spent longer than I should have like work building product and I you know succumbed to a lot of false signals as it turns out when I thought I was thought I was doing like good validation for the idea but in in reality made a bunch of mistakes there 
All right. I, I want to unpack that a little bit because that sounds very interesting, right? So let, let's start by the, the high from Drip, right? So mm-hmm. first of all, how long did you work at Drip after it got acquired? Like how, how much, how, for how long were you involved and to what degree? Post-acquisition, it was, I think, probably about 20 months or so. And okay. of course, there's, you know, there was kind of a, a contractual amount of time that I needed to be there and I stayed, yeah. stayed past that. But it kind of felt like the right time, like the business was was kind of starting to take on its next evolution. Like we started out very simple as like a, an email capture widget and gradually grew into marketing automation, um, yeah. which is a much, much larger scale type of product, not something we initially set out to build. And then, you know, when we were acquired by a company that was essentially venture backed, I mean, Leadpages had raised some close to $40 million in, in uh, venture capital. And so they kind of were looking for what's the what's the next big market to to get into and to really expand. And um, leadership team sort of identified e-commerce as as a really good fit with you know strategically for based on like talent that was in house in the senior leadership team and you know just areas where they thought they could make strides. And that yeah. was an area a realm that I was not particularly familiar with like we definitely served some e-commerce companies but it wasn't something that I felt was in in like my DNA as a founder and I, I felt like you know this is probably the right time to to let you know and, and around that time we had also basically fully transitioned all of my responsibilities like we, we had a whole engineering team that was up to speed on how everything worked so it, it just felt like a natural natural time to to move on. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Drip's transition to e-commerce. So for, for people who are not familiar, Drip, I guess, when I encountered it, it was probably like 2016, mm-hmm. um, I encountered it for email marketing. So I was just starting to do the whole online business thing. I was learning about that a lot. And I was like, oh, there's like several apps out there that will let me, you know, capture people's emails and give them something in return as a lead magnet and like build my email yeah. list and sort of grow my business on that. And I was like, that's cool. And I used it for a while. And at some point there was this big announcement that was like, hey, we are going to be focusing on e-commerce now. And I was like, oh, great. Mm-hmm. Bye. That's not me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, so that happened. But what I was thinking was like, from a business perspective, you could probably make a lot more money serving sort of, you know, larger clients with more revenue and whatever. Whereas for me, I'm just, you know, one dude, you know, making some videos, having like a couple thousand people on my email list. But it's funny that you mentioned that. So you got out of that company and you had the idea, you know, hey, I've been using Slack for a while. There's some pain points with Slack. Let me build something that is better. How did mm-hmm. you start working on that? Yeah, so I mean, I I started kind of talking to people in my my inner circle about the idea, and you know, there was definitely a lot of people who were intrigued. There were there was a lot of kind of sense of like people were calling this at the time like slack lash, like backlash, but for slack. <laughs> <laughs> like people that were you know, this was kind of sort of a tool that so many of us latched onto early on, and it like yeah. seemed seemed like a really great thing, and then kind of like seems like it also you know was became so embraced because it gave people a level of access to their coworkers that they maybe previously didn't have like instead of waiting for someone to reply to an email now I could just like post a slack message and it would send a send a push notification right to the person and like they would implicitly reply faster and so it like felt yeah. good to get more instantaneous kind of communication going but of course, if you don't keep that in check, then... <laughs> right. You, I, was th- I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of, I think a lot of people resonated with 
that pain point that I identified. And there was a lot of excitement. I, I like published a, wrote a little manifesto about kind of just speaking directly to, to this pain point and threw it up on a landing page. And that got a ton of, a ton of lift, ton of interest. I gathered yeah. in the, over the course of kind of my build out, I gathered close to 6,000 email addresses, I think, um, of people who were like seemingly very interested in, right. in an alternative. And so I did, I did definitely do some calls trying to get a sense for what actual problems were people having. I was trying to do my best at like doing rigorous customer validation. In, in hindsight, I think I ignored kind of, th- there was a couple things going on. There was, people were just wanting to be supportive. They were, they were kind of cheerleading. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, there were the cheerleaders who were just like, yeah, this sounds amazing. Yeah, Slack sucks. Yeah, I, you know. But right. they weren't actually... Like what I failed to do is identify whether they were actually in a position to make a buying decision about this in their organization. Were they the only one that felt that way inside of their company or did, was this like a sentiment that was shared among all the decision makers? How much of their business was art was like running on Slack? Like I kind of underestimated how many tentacles Slack has in so many companies. Like, <laughs> you know, you have various like web hooks set up or just business process things where like, you know, anytime a lead comes in, it pings in this channel and the sales team picks right. it up. So like there's workflow automation happening at a really deep level. And the more complex the or the more the larger the company is, generally the more complex their setup is, and also like the stickier. So therefore the stickier Slack is in the company. So it's like the ones that actually felt the pain the most in you know, relatively larger teams where things were really, really chaotic, those were the, the ones that were gonna be hardest to sell to. And, yeah. and really like the people who felt the pain the most were the makers in the organization, but the management layer it, for them, it was great. Like their job is to be interrupted all day long. Basically. <laughs> that's right? a great, and, that's a great insight. We should just let that sink in for the listeners. A little yeah. Bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's one way to like, to characterize it. It's like, there's the people whose job is to interrupt as little as possible. And then the opposite. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, it was hard. It would have, it would probably would have been possible to to get to the bottom of that if I had probably had a, more of a posture towards like validation is a phase where you actually try to um, you try to invalidate your hypotheses. So like I should have mm. I should have probably taken the approach of of going out there and saying like all right I think this is a an, an interesting idea now let me try to prove myself wrong and if I'm unable to sufficiently disprove my hypothesis then then I can yeah. move to the next step. But instead, I think I was seeking a lot of confirmation, and I got a ton of that. I collected several thousand dollars in pre-orders, um, all those email addresses, all the hype, and in reality, so so then I spent you know about a year working on the first version of the product. I was sharing updates; people were excited. And then when it came time to start inviting the very first people who had prepaid, it was sort of crickets. Like people weren't oh. really like they were like. Some people took me up on like getting in the product, looking at it. They kind of logged in a couple times, poked around, and then that was it. Yep. Other people just ignored the emails, honestly. So Oof. it was it was confusing. It was like, wait, what what is happening here? This is very different than than what I was expecting. And so I ultimately got like a couple of teams on board using it, and there were people on those teams who were like actually angry 
that they were switching off of Slack. Like I didn't realize how married to it a lot of people were. So like even the ones where, you know, I, it was a founder who I knew and he was like, nope, I'm kind of the sole decision maker on this thing. And I'm deciding we're going to try your tool. Like I'm willing yeah. to, I'm willing to do that. And he got so much backlash from his team and was like, oh boy, this is going to be, this is a much stickier product than I thought. And it just, it's not boding well that, that I'm not able to convince even some of my, some of my friends, honestly, who have companies and teams to switch over was, you know, started to become a, a major red flag at that point. Yeah. And so at, at the point where you were still building this, right before you sort of publicly launched level, I guess, or I don't know if you mm -hmm. did a beta launch or whatever, before, before mm -hmm. the point where you start getting users on it and you were doing the validation, you said perhaps you should have done a little bit more aggressive uh, validation or trying to disprove your own hypothesis that this was something people wanted. Mm -hmm. Do you think? Perhaps you were a little overconfident from having done so well with Drip? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the hazards that comes, I think, when you feel like, and I see other founders going through the same cycle, where you just think, you think you have some things figured out, and then, but in reality, like, most, most learnings and advice don't necessarily generalize. Like, the higher yeah. level concepts do. You know, learning how to problem solve, for example, right. is, like, something you can hone over time. But the specific tactics that happen to work like whether it's growth channels marketing things even development things even though it worked for this very specific application at this very specific point in time that's no guarantee that that you know that guarantees success or that it applies to the next to the next phase and i think that is that is a pretty big hazard when you when you come off of something that you feel like was a was a big success to just assume that that you know how to know how to tackle the next phase and and so, yeah, I definitely fell victim to that. And also, like, you know, it's sort of been deliberate over the past number of years in kind of growing a bit of a personal audience. You know, I've been podcasting weekly, active on Twitter communities, and just, like, trying to, trying to build up that asset of, like, people who are following along with what I'm doing. And that can also be a really dangerous thing because yeah. what you end up with is a lot of people who are invested in basically your well-being – and yeah, they like you. Yeah, yeah, and so they want to be encouraging, and that's actually that's actually can can be a really really tricky thing to root out. So I discovered during this time the book called The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. Highly recommend it, and it should be on the bookshelf of every founder, I think, because it's short, it's actionable, and it basically gives you kind of a framework for talking to customers or potential customers at, without um, succumbing to some of those biases. Like people always want to say nice things and help you out, but really like you need to ask questions in a certain way where it's impossible for them to lie to you because you're just information gathering. And uh, so that was, kind of, that was pretty eye-opening. When I read that book, someone gave it to me during the kind of tail end of the level of time. That was what really solidified in my mind like, oh yeah, I've kind of gotten off the track here because I've gotten a lot of, lot of biased information creeping in. Yeah, what is the is the gist of this book? Hey, you know, don't have people be like your mom, always supportive of you. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, the the idea. I think he named it that way because he says like you can use this this framework to validate a product idea even with with your own mom. So like, oh, wow. he gives okay, an example okay. of like you know like he say he was building a theoretical app for like managing recipes, right? And you know his mom's a cook, so he goes and asks, "Hey mom, what do you think about an iPad app where you can um, see all your recipes?" And she'd be like, "Oh, that sounds great, honey." And da 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 da. Uh -huh. And so 
then he like he uses that as like an example, one of the many examples in there, where he's like, but if I'd asked questions in these specific in this specific way, like, mom, what have you done to like? Do you have trouble with storing recipes? Well, what have you done to try to solve that problem so far? Right. The answer would have been like, oh, nothing. I just keep them in my same old recipe book that I've had for the last forty years. It's fine. You know, <laughs> it's fine. So. Yeah, like never ask, obviously never asking the question of like, what do you think about this idea I want to work on? Does this sound like a good idea? Like that's a terrible right. question. Uh, it is a terrible question. And so, yeah. and so I'm curious to hear how you avoided this mistake in Savikel. But first, I just want to reflect a little bit on that moment when you realized like this thing with level is not working out. Because mm-hmm. I'm curious how you pulled the plug and what happened after you pulled the plug, how you felt and whether you took any time off maybe before starting your next product or that you were just like, okay, this didn't work. I got to start something else right away. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, probably there was probably like a four to six week period where I think I knew deep down, like this is not going to be, I don't Eh. think this is going to be viable, but I, kind of drug my feet a little bit on making the official call, you know, and I, yeah. and I had a couple teams using the product. And so I, it was like, there were some, some logistics there of like, all right, I'm going to have to break the news to them and yeah. offboard them off the product. That's not going to be fun. So no, <laughs> those things made me <laughs> procrastinate a little bit, I think, but I, you know, just finally, um, after conversations with friends, mentors, my wife, like finally just, just you know, came, be, became at peace with it. And I actually decided to go out of town for like a long weekend trip um, up to a cabin in northern Minnesota to reflect and make sure that this was like, okay, this is the right move to make. I Up there, I wrote the retrospective, like the, lo- the blog post. It's like the most popular piece of content I've ever written that's gotten shared on oh, a bunch okay. on the internet. Yeah, it really resonated with people, which honestly, that... That was one of the, the, it was a bittersweet thing shutting it down. That was one of the sweet parts was like that I could, you know, reflect on this, summarize it and then share it with the world and hopefully help some other founders avoid those same mistakes. You know, that, that brings me joy to see that happen. But I really kind of, it was a good reset to go up there and, and do that. And I sort of came to terms with it. Like there was probably a brief kind of mourning period of like, yeah. okay, I'm going to, this thing's dead and I need to move on to the next thing. But then the months that followed were, I was pretty stressed out because I was sort of faced with this decision. I'm like, all right, I've, I've burned a lot of runway, <laughs> like doing the, in this last year, I had enough personal runway to take another swing, but you know, you, it really hits your confidence when you go through an experience like that. So I was like, yeah. do I really want to do that? Should I just go get a job for a while and just like draw a paycheck and just just like kind of really reset and look for look for the next thing during that time? Or I don't know. I was sort of in a place of like, I don't really know what to do, but I kind of became convinced like I do, this doesn't feel like the right time yet for me to like put the brakes on entrepreneurship and, and just go get a job. Like I knew I wanted to do something, but it was pretty agonizing. I, I spent a couple of months really not, you know, not diving into any particular project and just spending a lot of time in my hammock in the backyard and like, you know, just kind of kind of chilling that summer and and doing a lot of like thinking and scribbling in the notebook trying to come up with ideas. And so yeah, there was a there was a period of a few months and then I actually had a I had a product in between Level and Savvy Cal that was sort of a bridge product 
that I worked on for a bit and didn't really gain traction with it, but I wasn't expecting it to be a big success necessarily. I was sort of sort of like interested. It was basically in the in the developer tooling space for static site generators. And okay. I just wanted to really I wanted to play with the technology, explore the space a bit, and kind of wait to get some degree of confidence that I knew what I was gonna what I was really gonna sink my teeth into. And I think that's important to do. Like like just sitting idly staring at a, a, a metaphorical blank page thinking like, what's my next business going to be is a really hard thing to do. That never so, works. No, <laughs> no. That doesn't work for anything. That doesn't work if you're writing a blog post or making a video, podcast, whatever. Yeah. It never works business. Yeah. So how did you decide not to take a job just to have some money coming in? How did you decide, mm-hmm. you know what, like I'm going to take at least one more swing and I guess two in the end at building a new business? Yeah, I think, I think talking to friends and mentors was a big, um, was a big help. Like if I just had to decide on my own, then I probably would have, wouldn't have had enough, wouldn't have been able to muster enough self-confidence to, to go and Mm. do it. But I think, um, you know, I have some friends that are very like Rob, my, my co-founder with drip is also a really good friend of mine. And we, we had a bunch of conversations and it's like, well, realistically, like what can you, what can you afford? Like, can you afford to do, could you do another year of trying something? And, and now you have lessons that you can take from your previous experience. And I know you can do something like, I know you can, you're capable of doing this. And just hearing like someone that I respect say like, no, you're capable of doing this was really what I needed to hear. And so I, I'm actually decently like reflecting on my own personality. I'm decently risk averse for, for being an entrepreneur. Like I, if I'm looking at, you know, three years of runway, personal runway in the bank, I'm like feeling like, well, I don't know, I'm pretty close to the end of my runway. Like, Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Like I'm, I think I, for many people, that would be the dream. <laughs> right, right. And I've known many people who have taken a leap on, you know, four months of savings or three months yeah. of savings or something. And so part of that is just, I, I have to be reminded by other people like, look, you have plenty of runway. You can do this. Like you can, you can be a little riskier. And even my wife yeah. is one of those people who says that, which helps. Like she's like, I don't care. Yeah, go do it. Go risk. You know, like take a risk. And so, it's helpful to have people to be served as those voices. I think I think it's really important. And so then, at what point did you decide to work on what is now your main, you know, business, or maybe the only one, Savvy Cal? When did you have the idea for that? And when did you say, okay, you know what, this is what I'm going to sink my teeth into? Yeah. So I was kind of, yeah, I worked on the the Static Site Tools app for a while, and it was it was going to be a hard road to like grow that into a, a full business. So I was kind of um, still working through ideation and. The one of the favorite exercises I like to do is to periodically reflect on tools that I've used as part of my regular tool chain and just think about like what what about these tools is suboptimal. I think, you know, scratching your own itch, as they say, is it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna hit on something good if you're like identify some problem you have with something like you might be the only person that really cares about that problem, or maybe you've like deluded yourself into thinking that it's a bigger problem than it really is. Like we tend to, we have a tendency to do that sometimes when we're analyzing a problem and we start to like think about like, yeah, I think I could do that better. And then suddenly you inflate the problem in your head bigger than it actually is in, you know, in the market. So it can be a risky thing, but still I feel like it's, it's, it can be a really good starting point because 
if you know the problem intimately well, then you have a much better shot at at just having better hunches, better intuition about things. Um, totally. To at least use as a starting point. And so I'd used scheduling tools a bunch. We had integrated with Calendly early on, like when Calendly was only a few a year or two old, I think, and it's really hmm. early days. We integrated Drip into it. And so I was very familiar with this type of tool. It was pretty interesting to me from a bunch of different angles, one being that it's kind of, it's very opposite from level in that an individual person can just use it, you know. Yeah, it's very different, right? Yeah, it's not like a business thing. Right, and like teams can use it and and do, you know, use scheduling tools, but it doesn't have to start that way. It can just start with one one busy person who needs to schedule meetings and wants to use a scheduling link. So it kind of has a natural path from like single-player to multiplayer mode that's very smooth. It's pretty easy to switch. The switching costs are not very high. Most people switch within a matter of a couple of minutes from yeah. a different tool. It naturally spreads itself. So like every time you share a scheduling link, it has SavvyCal branding on it, so it's being exposed to it to new people. It's I determined it was going to be pretty quick to build like a first version of it compared to Level. Level was like a nine-month-ish initial build out before I started inviting people in and this this is just much lower like I didn't didn't have as many minimum things that needed to be in the product to be useful to people so like all these things seemed super attractive I kind of did a lot of like analysis of this kind in my notebook and this idea kind of stuck out and then I started reflecting on you know what's my experience using scheduling tools and one of the things I've observed is like many times people don't actually use a scheduling link and they fall back to the less optimal route because they're afraid of offending the other person. This was a very curious behavior pattern that I noticed. Like, why are people intentionally choosing to waste time? And I understand it's part etiquette. Like, part of it is just, like, you know, communicating well. (laughs) But the Mm -hmm. other part, I think, like, is, I think the product can help with. Like, I think it's a combination of etiquette and... And the way the product works. And so I started to, to think of like, well, how could I make a scheduling tool that feels more collaborative, that feels just as convenient for the other party, and maybe encourage people to use it a little bit more than they already are right now and not have that that friction. I also always had a lot of anxiety around sending a scheduling link and, and not being sure if if that's going to completely wreck my calendar. Like, so I would <laughs> yeah. always like, before I would send one out, I always go check and look at the, okay, what are the slots it's showing? Then I click over to my calendar and I look at, you know, what's coming up with my schedule and maybe I'd go like do some manual blockouts. And it was this whole like kind of laborious process. And so that was another big piece that I was starting to like envision was like, what if you just log in to the tool and you see your calendar, you see the availability they're going to see, and you can quickly make modifications on the fly. And so there was a couple of pieces like that that were just fundamentally different and what I felt was like leveling up the status quo. And that's how I formed kind of my initial hypotheses around around a new new product here. Yeah, I love what you said about starting the business to scratch your own itch because actually um, my previous podcast guest, she started a business that started out as like scented candles and it and it grew quite rapidly and she found it was very hard to track her inventory and so she and her boyfriend built an app to like track the inventory for people who are like you know selling handcrafted things like Etsy shops and whatever and yeah. now that business which is like also a SaaS product is actually much bigger than the scented candle business mm, nice. <laughs> so I, yeah. I do think that can work um, but you said earlier that 
you know, when you were building level, you kind of fell into some traps, right? You assumed that people, you know, were more likely to switch, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned some of those things with Savvy Calvice. It's easy for people to switch. You know, I, I switched from Calendly to Savvy Cal a while ago. And it was like, it was very easy. Like saying it like, took me like 15 minutes to like learn how to set it up. And it's much easier. I love the calendar overlay feature. And for people, by the way, who are like, what is this? You know, why don't you give a really short pitch actually? Like who needs a scheduling app? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the basic premise is, you know, if you if you need to ever find times to like schedule a Zoom call or a podcast recording or just a, a meeting with generally like someone external to your to your internal team, you know, an external colleague or something. And so you basically want to be able to share your availability um, when you don't have something already on your calendar and set some parameters like automatically attach a Zoom meeting or set a duration, like this will be a 30 minute meeting or a 60 minute. That's what SavvyCal allows you to do. You can generate a link and you can you can personalize it, you can pre-fill the, the recipient's information on it and they will receive um, a link that takes them to a page where they can see a calendar view with your anonymized availability. They're not gonna see your calendar events, they're gonna see when you're blocked out, when you're free. And then they can uh, click a button and authorize their calendar to see their events right on top of your availability if they want to they don't have to do that yeah and i love that part that part's yeah. so nice <laughs> yep yep it's it's i'm delighted every time someone sends me a savvy cal link which happens it happened for this podcast episode yeah yeah, um, yeah. and when i receive it and i'm of course logged in savvy cal so as soon as i open your link it's like right away i can see times that work for me because it's just yeah. it's just right there so yeah it's just to not have to send a bunch of back and forth emails. Hey, can you do this or this or this time? And then right. someone replies three days later. Oh, yes, I could do that time. But no, that time has already been booked now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a yeah. massive pain point. So uh, I like it now because I do some coaching for people and, you know, I record podcast episodes and all that stuff. So it's much easier just to send a link and be like, this is my availability. Pick a mm -hmm. time. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you had this itch and you were like, I use scheduling tools. I feel like I, they can be better. I can build a better one. But how did you avoid falling into this same trap of, hey, you know, I don't, I don't like everything about Slack and, and, you know, people are excited, but it turns out they're mostly supportive of you and they don't necessarily have that pain point. How did you just distinguish between, you know, those two situations? How did you know that mm -hmm. people really wanted this and were going to use it if you built it? Yeah, it's like, I, I think I employed all of the, the the mom test practices in my conversations and so i think that was helpful but honestly it's like i didn't know for sure and that is the that's the thing that that entrepreneurs have to be willing to accept like some of this is is like some of this is discernible some of it is just simply not until you have yeah. an actual product you can put in people's hands so i had some conversations i would say some of them were people who were skeptical not convinced they were like i don't know calendly is pretty nice like why why would i want anything different and i was trying not to just pitch them on my concept you know so i was really trying to avoid doing that because that that sets you up for bias right so i was trying to to get at like well okay so have you have you explored other tools have you experienced you know friction sending like do you are there times where you don't send your link and what i did find was like there were a lot of people who said like who just told me that, yeah, there are a lot of times where I don't send a link. And so part of this was me betting on myself that like I could actually build a compelling solution that would, that would be make a meaningful difference on people's behavior on that front. Because I think people expressed wanting to be able to, they were not happy about the fact that they had to go the inefficient route. 
but they just felt stuck. And so sometimes you have to, you have to rely on those signals, which are not entirely clear that they'll switch tools. But I was also kind of relying on the fact that like, even, you know, even if I make this marginally better for them, I think a lot of these people seem open to exploring another tool because it's not the same as ripping out, you know, your entire team communication platform and replacing it. This is just like, well, I could, yeah, I mean, I could try out your tool and if I like it, then yeah, I'll switch over. And I knew that like, if someone said that to me, I could probably deliver on keeping the switching costs low. And so to me, it was worth betting. Like I got enough validation, I will say from that and not enough like refuting evidence to say like, okay, I'll put three months into building an MVP and we'll see what happens next. And so I just took it as like a learning step, you know? Right. And so now you savvy Kel is moderately successful or you know i'm successful to some degree right you know but people like it i enjoy using it and it seems like you enjoy working on it so but you know you have some big competitors like calently is a much bigger organization i don't know exactly how many people they have but much bigger so you know when you're talking to people how do you say you should use my product that i make and i think you have two other employees right so like that the three of us are making as opposed to this other company that's been around longer has much more brand recognition and you know a larger team lots of support mm-hmm. folks how do you pitch people on that yeah i think um you know part of it is this this the tool spreads itself naturally so people are mm. people are seeing it and constantly talking about it who are who have broken outside of my kind of sphere of influence, I would say like kind of the first and second ring, you know, on, on Twitter and my newsletter and podcast audience. Like I see people who are not in those spheres coming in contact with the tool regularly. And I think, so a big part of this has been delivering on the promise of like better user experience. So when people, people see it and experience it, it catches their attention. So that's been big. I think another piece that we tried to, we tried to zero in on like, okay, so our positioning, we did a bunch of work on and a lot of the tools in the space are positioned with the headline. Like I think Calendly's headline is like easy scheduling ahead. So they're just, they're just saying like, it's a very literal headline speaking to what, what the tool does. Right. And the, the opportunity that we could exploit here was the fact that tools like Calendly have paved the way for people understanding what this type of tool does. So we don't have to do that kind of education. Instead, we can say, we can be much more direct speaking to the pain point in our headline. So like our headline we had for a long time was sending your scheduling link shouldn't feel weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you don't know what a scheduling link is, this would be like, like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, what is this? So like we're, we we're positioning directly to people who already understood the space well, and when they right. read that line, they'd be like, oh, yeah, it does feel weird. Like that would strike a chord with them. And you can't do that if you're one of the first tools. If you're an innovator who's like needs to educate the market about a new class of tool, then you can't you can't come out saying like we're going to make it f- feel less weird. You have to just tell people like this is what it does. You don't have to do back and forth over email anymore. But it it waters down your your pitch. So like the, yeah. I think it that served us well to really speak to a key differentiator, assuming that we're going to be getting this marketing site primarily in front of people who are already familiar with these types of tools. And, you know, one of the first pages we built was a comparison page with Calendly. (laughs) Of course, yeah. Because that's the natural first question is like, how are you different? And I understand like people, I would be curious too, if I encountered a new tool, like, well, but how is it, how is it any different? So 
I think, you know, like product wise, I definitely prioritized, you know, building the, the differentiating pieces first. So like the, the visual calendar booking interface is something that I don't believe any other tool on the market has. And so I invested most of my time into like building that experience. Yeah. So then I could point to like, no, we're different in this fundamental way. And here's how we put the product right on the homepage. So like right there below the headline is an actual working demo of a scheduling link. So people can immediately play with it. So we're just trying to like reduce the amount of time it takes for someone to grasp that it really is different. Yeah, that's your unique selling point, right? It's like yep. I can if you send me a savvy cal link, I cannot just see your calendar, but I can see my own calendar. And it's mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I really hope some people listening go check this out because it's I, I encounter it not nearly often enough when I try to schedule things with people, like just right. using any scheduling tool. So Well and um, that's and it's a huge market. So like your other point yes. of like how am I competing you know, I think Entering large markets can be daunting, can be scary, but it also presents a lot of opportunity because there are just, I mean, there are literally millions of people on this planet who could potentially use a scheduling tool. Many of them already are, but many of them, a majority of them probably aren't yet. And so that's another thing. Like if you're tackling something as general as like helping people more efficiently manage their time and you're taking a particular angle, there's just so many different opportunities compared to something that's like, extremely niche i mean that's another there's another strategy is just to go really really niche and be right like like for doctor's offices or something yeah yeah and and that's fine too but it narrows it narrows the scope a bit so it's just that's what i that's it kind of cuts both ways but i like that aspect of large markets is that there's just so many people to potentially sell to yeah and i think sort of a lot of people in the software engineering space, probably like 90% of them use a scheduling tool. But if you go to like lawyers, you'll find that many of them don't, whereas a lot of them mm-hmm. probably could. Anyway, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you work. I'm curious about this, and I think people will be too. So uh, j- just to establish a baseline. So you, I think you currently have three people working on SavvyCal, but were you working on it alone up to a certain point? Yes. Yeah, so I started, I'm a solo founder. So I was just mm-hmm. working on the product myself up until... Um, let's see, we launched, we started working on it. It basically at the beginning of COVID, like in spring of spring of 2020. It's a nice way to measure time, right? Ever since COVID, yeah, like, there's kind of like now. the start of COVID is such a right. great point. To, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it was right around that time. And I basically built, did, did, wore all the hats for yeah. the first, you know, nine months or so launched it, you know, privately launched it, then did a public launch. And got to about a thousand dollars in in monthly recurring revenue by the end of by like November of um, 2020, mm-hmm. and around that time, so I'd also during this process, like post drip, had raised um, a little bit of funding from Tiny Seed, which is a kind mm-hmm. of an indie like funding for bootstrappers type of funding, so not not traditional venture capital, and so that gave me some some nice like runway in the business to be able to hire a head of revenue growth a little bit. And I recognize that, you know, I'm predominantly a product builder and someone needs to be focusing a majority of their energy on that. And so that's when I, it worked out for me to contract with Corey, Corey Haynes, who does kind of our, he's like our part-time head of marketing and growth. And it's been really, really great having help on that front. So he helped coordinate our product hunt launch. That was very, very successful. And then we've just experimented with a bunch of different channels um, over the last year. And 
you know, he spearheaded most of those. So it allowed, freed me up to, to still continue aggressively building out product. And then I reached the point by like mid 2021, I was like ready to, I was feeling like a bit of distraction from support, even though the support volume wasn't super high. I would wake up in the morning and always check that inbox. And if there were a number right. of emails in there, I would want to get right on them. Yeah. And my most productive time is in the morning. So I found myself constantly using my most productive hours of the day, just answering support emails. And so I started, um, ended up hiring, uh, going through a firm called Xfusion. I really have enjoyed working with them. And they they do all the, like the sourcing and hiring of of a dedicated support rep for you. And I just pay like a flat fee to them. Hmm. And so, you know, got, got to um, start working with Reggie through that and he's been fantastic. So it's been nice to kind of have someone looking over the growth and marketing side of things and over the support side of things. And that really helps, you know, free up my mental headspace. Yeah, totally. And so, and so initially you wore all the hats yourself. I, I imagine you still wear several hats yourself because there, mm-hmm. there's still multiple things to do, but Let's think especially about when you were doing everything by yourself. How did you sort of switch between those different hats? Did you, for example, say, on Mondays, I'm going to do this. On Tuesdays, I'm going to do that. Or was it very much like, whatever feels urgent is what I'm going to work on right now? Yeah. I think I've never, I've experimented with trying to do like, all right, I'm only going to do this type of task on this day type of flow. I've never been able to consistently keep that rhythm up. I think... What I generally do is say, like, for a given week, my focus is going to be in a certain area. So, like, Mm -hmm. if I know I want to make progress on a particular feature or set of features, then, you know, maybe I decide in in a given week, like, all right, that's going to be my main focus. But then maybe the next week it's like, all right, we have a bunch of, you know, website updates to make or just things on the marketing front that we want to focus energy on. So then I kind of mentally set that in my mind as, like, that's the number one priority for this week and make sure that, like, on any given day, I'm making forward progress on that goal for the week. I think I think it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves for me because it's probably going to make sense to start planning even a bit more in advance and saying like maybe the next month or even the next six weeks, this is what yeah. I want to try to get done. But I feel like in the early stage, it's really served me well to stay a bit more nimble like a bit more like planning kind of up to the next few days as opposed to really far out has because you have to be when you're when it's really early and you're trying to figure out like all right i'm behind by a significant amount on like kind of the table stakes features that people expect from scheduling tools like so the question is like when's the right time to add customization on this specific thing like i don't know when the right time is for that but I'm going to be nimble enough listening to like customers coming in and like, okay, this is starting to become a really big problem for enough customers. Like I need to get on that now, but I couldn't have guessed that. Like it would have been hard to know without actual um, signal coming in from customers. So all that to say, like I, I think, you know, in the, especially in the first year, year and a half, like I've tried to stay very, very um, nimble, like able to react quickly to, to stuff coming in. And yeah, like I think kind of, keeping it to like a, a goal for the week has been most effective for me. And then let's say there's a feature that you want to build out. Would you then block off time on your calendar for that and like not look at support requests? Yeah, I'm generally, so there's, I see two schools of thought on this on like allocating time. One is like 
the, the time blocker or the one who budgets all of their time. And then the other alternative is like just trying to keep a lot of white space on the calendar. And I'm, I still prefer, I, this might evolve for me too over time, but like I still prefer having a day where like there's no calendar events on there. Like that's the best day yeah. for me. And I kind of know my natural rhythms. So like my, for me, it's pretty simple. Like beginning of the day, I have the most energy. That's my the time where I'm going to be most creative, most productive, and then it's basically all downhill from there. And I try to like I try to keep lifting it up periodically with coffee, basically uh-huh. throughout the day. So, you know, mornings are like when if I'm going to work on something really high value, that's when I want to tackle it. Is when my first yeah. you know first bit of caffeine really hits. That's when it's you know it's time it's go time, and and then I'll kind of mid morning generally check try to check in on email and and support and see what's happening and then kind of go another hour or two eat lunch check on email do another maybe a couple hours stint and then kind of wind down for the day yeah no it really resonates what you say with me uh, what we said about keeping your calendar empty on certain days so mm-hmm. i've really been trying to do that and, and i need to put more effort into it because it's so easy to have even just like one meeting a day maybe two meetings a day and especially if you need to do any kind of work that requires focus. So for you, I guess it'd be like building a new feature, or whatever, you know, coding. For me, I'm spending sort of this quarter, the final quarter of 2021 on really upping my YouTube game. And so that mm-hmm. requires me to be quite in a creative mode where I spent hours at a time planning out a video, recording it, you know, that's just not something you can really do with like one hour at a time or even two, really, you know, and, and knowing, oh, in an hour and a half, I have a podcast recording makes it very difficult to get in that creative heads, headspace. So I really, mm-hmm. that really resonates with me. So when you decide, okay, I'm going to work on this, this feature, you know, this week or something like that, right? Let's say it's a, a new feature for, for Savvy Cal for the actual product. And then you have an idea for something that you could update on the website. Are you disciplined enough to then not work on the website? Do you sort of have a system where you put that off and you like see it next week? Or mm. does it kind of slip in and you find yourself kind of later in the day mucking around with the website anyway? I do often let those little things slip in. I generally try not to interrupt an existing task. Like I, a, a big goal of mine is to not have a bunch of like feature branches going at once mm. and and try to I try to relentlessly break things down into as small chunks as possible so that like if I'm working on kind of a big initiative, maybe I've sliced off a small piece that I can work on, get done in the span of a day and deploy that piece into production and feel good about like checking off that slice of it. And then, you know, once I kind of feel like I've gotten that to a to a good place, then I can like if it's a small small change I want to make to the website or something like that, I can slip that kind of task in. If alternatively I was doing like a big I had a big long running branch where I was like deep in the middle of this project and it was going to take multiple days or even weeks to to get through. Then I might still work on some of those little things, but I would have I would feel much more anxiety around that. And so I think yeah. a, a big thing that I've tried to do, yeah, is is kind of break things up into small chunks so you can slip in other small things. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I keep trying to tell people also and you know when I coach people or you know when I in my courses when I make videos is a lot of the times people are sort of thinking, oh, what should I work on today? And not sure. Should I work on A mm-hmm. or should I work on B today? And then I tell them, you kind of need to take a step back and like make higher level um, decisions. So that's why I really like what you're saying. It's like this week is going to be about topic X. I, I, you know, like doing this at a quarterly level. So I kind of like update my list of goals every quarter and then I have action steps for every goal. And then I say, okay, this 
quarter, I'm really going to focus on this. For example, like for me, Q4 2021 is all about YouTube. I'm going to like, you know, learn a bunch of things about editing. I enrolled in like a course, a live course that will help me with this. You know, I'm like upgrading my home studio, maybe even move apartments to like get a better home studio and everything. Yeah. And so, but it also means then that you're not focusing on the other stuff. So you mentioned it's easy to feel anxiety, but that's, I think what happens when you try to focus on two things, you're constantly thinking to yourself, should I be working on the other thing? But by mm -hmm. having a periodic, regular planning process, um, you can kind of get out of that. And so I'm curious about, do you do any planning on a timescale longer than a week, both for Savvy Cal, but also like for personal goals? For example, it could be like something like fitness or whatever. Um, do you have any process that you go through periodically? Yeah, I think I've been, I've been starting to do more of kind of the quarterly, quarterly planning as well. So I haven't been super rigorous about it, but I think I've started to feel some of the effects of not having like a solid plan in my head. <laughs> so I, and I've talked this throughout my podcast multiple times too, where I'm like oh, okay. realizing I'm feeling a little bit like just a little bit unsure or like, I don't know, feeling like I've dropped in productivity or something. And it's like, well, what are you measuring? What are you making your evaluation of yourself against? Yeah. Like, what are you, and that's the, that's the important thing I think is like, it's less about, like, I don't need goals necessarily to keep myself motivated because I'm an intrinsically pretty motivated person. But I think it's like the reverse can happen where if, if I don't have like something where I'm like, if you just get this done, then you can feel good about the progress you've made. Then I will kind of find myself in a state of of almost always feeling dissatisfied or like like I'm not getting enough done or not getting enough done fast enough. Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of that kind of thinking through. Um, so yeah, I've, I, I still do kind of the, what's the goal for the week, but I, but I measure that against kind of my goal for the month. And I generally send a little tidbit of like, here's kind of what the direction we're planning to build things in. And I put that in the product update email that goes to all customers. So I kind of like try to keep a little bit of accountability there. I think people are always curious to know like what's what's coming up next in the product yeah wait uh, I am i like... subscribed to those am i getting those <laughs> you should be yeah yeah <laughs> okay yep i'll have to see <laughs> yeah yeah they go out generally around the, the first of the month um, oh cool yeah and it's usually just it's just a couple lines at the end like i'm, I'm not a big fan of like fully public roadmaps where like all the mm. granular detail is right there for all the world to see because that can i think it can set up unrealistic expectations or like, yeah you know, it, there's some problems with that, but I think giving people a small window is helpful and also keeps me a little bit accountable to like, no, you said like, this is the general theme of the things you're going to work on this month and you should try to stick to that as much as possible. So monthly is good, but I think monthly is not quite enough too. So I think quarterly can be pretty helpful too. I think anything beyond that for me, I'd have a hard time saying like, this is what I want to get done this year. It's like, I don't know what direction the product's yeah. going to, you know, to me, that's a little bit probably a little bit too far but quarter is probably about the a good sweet spot i think yeah i think that depends on the kind of work that you do you know like for me i just work by myself i run my own thing so like quarterly is totally fine but i imagine if mm -hmm. you're working in like a larger firm where you're leading let's say like 80 people or whatever you know people need more guidance right so you need to come mm -hmm. up with it then you need to communicate it they need to act on it so probably a longer time scale is helpful as well um yep. okay i want to ask you about one more thing before we wrap it up and that is earlier you mentioned that when you were working on Level, the um, software that didn't really, you know, become successful, you were talking with, you know, mentors and friends and whatever, and they really sort of told you, no, look, like, you're capable, you can do things, and that mm -hmm. really helped get your confidence back. And, and I, 
I think I read this on your Q&A on Product Hunt, but I'm not sure that you're also in a mastermind group. I read it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I want to hear about that a little bit because I, I've always been fascinated by the idea of mastermind groups. Never really, I don't know, I'm not in one, you know, I've never really got to that point. But I'm curious, what is that like? How, how did you find this group of people that you're in a mastermind group with? How does it work? How often do you meet? And do you kind of do a round table? You know, what, what mm-hmm. benefits do you feel from that? Yeah. So I've been in I've been in several of these over the years and they've each functioned a little bit differently, but I think the ones that I'm I'm most gravitated towards. So everyone has a little bit different preferences around this. Let's preface with that, you know. I've been in ones that are a little bit more serious where it's like we talk once a month and we do the kind of the round the hot seat format where like mm-hmm. maybe you rotate on who's taking most of the time and then everyone has a, a few minutes or whatever. I'm not a big fan of the the super um rigid kind like that like they're helpful but i i like the way masterminds have sort of functioned for me have been sort of like a quasi extension of my founding team like so i'm in i'm in one with two other solo founders Hmm. who also went through the same tiny seed batch as me so we kind of naturally came out of that same same little cohort together and we built a friendship and so we enjoy like we talk almost daily i would say we're in like a little shared workspace chat and we're just kind of, we use that as a place to be a sounding board. So if we're frustrated about something or trying or wrestling with a decision about something, we'll just, we can share freely with each other. We all know each other's numbers. So it's like, you know, very candid with each other. And right. so it sort of feels like, for me at least, and I think the other guys would probably agree that like, we can kind of come to each other with questions that maybe you would typically go to your co-founder about if you had one and kind of strategize and then we do, we do um, in this one, we do a call every other week and for about an hour. And we sort of just, it's kind of organic on whoever needs to talk the most, whoever's dealing, wrestling with the most tricky decisions generally takes most of the time. But we usually try to like, you know, each, each like share a little bit of what's been going on that we haven't, haven't managed to talk about organically through our, our chat room. And it's honestly, it's one of the, it would be hard to imagine doing this without something like that. Like it would be pretty, it can be really lonely. Um, yeah. You feel like you're making all these decisions, like you're making, you know, thousands of decisions and it's like, it's hard to know whether you're on the right track. So even just getting, even if it's something where like should, it feels like it should be obvious, just running it past someone else can really give peace of mind I've found. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of them. No, that's that's great. I should uh, I should get on that because <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I keep I, hearing people uh, say really positive things about it. So there's a couple. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with the MicroConf community, but that um, no. Yeah, so that's it's a started as a conference that my co-founder with Drip Rob started putting on like mm. gosh, over ten years ago, I think now. And now there's like also a an online community called Microsoft or My, MicroConf Connect, I think, and they do they have a thing through. Um, through that community where they help kind of pair people up in masterminds too. So there's like that, that kind of service, which I think folks find helpful. And there's a couple other kind of matchmaking things out there too, I think for folks, if they're interested. Cool. I'll, I'll have to check that out. And yeah, people yeah. can, um, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so people can go check that out yeah. as well. Yeah. So that was really nice. So, so Derek, if someone is frustrated about the way that they schedule meetings with people, <laughs> what should they do? They should go, definitely, they should go to SavvyCal.com. We can we can even drop like a coupon code if that's if that's kosher with you. Cool, um, absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, 
We'll come up with a. We'll we'll put it in the show notes. I'm not sure what we want to make the code exactly, but um, but we'll look put there in the show for notes. for a for a free month, um, a savvy cal, and yeah, we have a seven day trial, and then we can give you an extra free month for listening to this fine podcast. Very cool. Yeah, and and I will add my personal endorsement. It's been so lovely. It just 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 imagine it like you're booking a meeting with someone, and you say, okay click on this link and and they get that link they click on it they see your availability on the calendar they can overlay their own calendar they can see exactly where there's a mutually convenient gap pick a time everybody knows what's going on if you need to reschedule you just click the reschedule button and you go through the same thing i mean i don't know it's I, it, honestly one of the biggest time savers and, and no-brainers and everybody go check it out love it so thanks very much derek for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me it was a blast Hey, if you like the show, subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. We'd also love it if you rated the show on Apple Podcasts. To find out more about Peter or about today's guest, check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of How They Get Stuff Done.